Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. The Middle East. America's involvement in the region dates back to the days of George Washington, long before an oil boom and subsequent wars redefined the political map. But these days, things are different. The U.S. has largely withdrawn its boots on the ground. Israel has a host of new, relatively friendly neighbors. And of course, the Iran nuclear deal is more or less dead. It's a far cry from the situation Joe Biden left four years ago as vice president. This approach, for some, was the right one, an unorthodox style that netted some wins and kept America's enemies at bay. For others, it squandered U.S. influence. Now is President Biden's chance once again to shift U.S. policy. Yet the question remains, for the last four years, did America get the Middle East right? Arguing for the motion, for the last four years, America got the Middle East right, is Mary Beth Long, former Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. She is the first woman ever appointed as chair of NATO's high-level group, the highest level responsible for NATO's nuclear policy. Her partner, Danny Danone, former Israeli Deputy Defense Minister and Ambassador to the United Nations, currently chairman of the World Likud, a global organization dedicated to combating anti-Semitism. Their opponents arguing against the motion. Dr. Justine Rosenthal, former editor-in-chief of The National Interest and executive editor of Newsweek magazine. Rosenthal served as director of the Council on Global Terrorism and is a former director at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her debate partner, Michael Ware, former Time magazine Baghdad bureau chief and CNN correspondent, among the few Western journalists to live full-time in Iraq for several years during the U.S.-led war. They both produced the Emmy-nominated HBO film Only the Dead See the End of War. They are also Intelligence Squared's first-ever married debate team. Okay, so we go in three rounds, and now we're going to go straight into it, beginning with round one. And round one is comprised of opening statements from each debater in turn. Our motion is, for the last four years... America got the Middle East right. First up to argue for that motion, here is Mary Beth Long. Mary Beth, the screen is all yours. I really have two important points to make. And the first was, let's recall where we were four years ago. We were at the point where we were considering putting additional resources and additional troops into the Middle East. And why is that? The Middle East was a very dangerous place. Four years ago, about this time, we had ISIS really on the ascendancy in Iraq. While some progress had been made, we were still fighting in Mosul. In Syria, the al-Nusra front was really on the ascendancy. The caliphate really was still in place. We had the internal combatants. We had Russia. We had multiple foreign powers from the European countries all fighting in Syria 
or nearby, which was really beginning to make the region more inflamed than it had been in previous years. The U.S. relationships with Israel were not in a good place four years ago. The Middle East is always a mess. It's always been a mess, but it was particularly messy four years ago. Let's step back for just a moment and talk about the proxies and the non-state actors that were contributing to everything that I just mentioned. In fact, Iran was participating probably really for the first time in our memory with troops, and those include the Quds Force, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, supporting the Houthis and other proxies, in Lebanon, Hezbollah and others, and even in Bahrain. Iran was on the march. And in addition to sending troops, proxies, the Quds Force abroad, it was actually having the audacity to fire missiles from Yemen from foreign countries into Saudi Arabia and also into Israel. The bottom line was, while that mess existed four years ago, we're in a much different place. And in fact, we have drawn down troops and the level of conflict in Syria and other places have been greatly diminished. Now I'm going to turn to the ambassador to address the, the particular aspects about Iran and the Iran nuclear program and Israel. Justine Rosenthal, you're arguing against the resolution and the screen is yours. I would say that Trump's Middle East policy has been bad not only for long-term peace and prosperity in the Middle East, but also for U.S. national interests. Uh, though it is often hailed as one of Donald Trump's singular achievements during his time in office. In fact, Trump's Middle East policy, if in my opinion one can even call it a policy, for there has been no coherent objective, except perhaps strengthening Israel, uh, has been a largely unmitigated disaster. And let me begin with Israel. As the Abram Accords, which normalizes relations between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain, amongst others, is argued to be an unprecedented move towards peace between Israel and many Arab states in the region. This argument is flawed, in my opinion, for several reasons. First, one can acknowledge that the Abraham Accords are a move in the right direction. But more than anything, the Accords have simply turned a de facto reality into a de jure one. That is to say, peaceful relations between Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain were already in existence implicitly, if not explicitly. And the bargains that America has cut with other nations to achieve this accord largely outweigh the benefits. Second, enacting the Abram Accords without any concomitant movement on a two-state solution or any conditions on Israeli policy for that matter only sets back the long-term prospects of Israeli security. Now more than ever, the prospects for a two-state solution are farther away in the rearview mirror. This will further radicalize Palestinians, embolden the Israeli far right, and turn Israel into a greater Israel whose population will include more Palestinians than it does Israelis. This cannot be in Israel's interest. Third, the Abraham Accords only deepen the divide between the Shia and Sunni states. And this leaves Israel and the rest of the Middle East to face an Iran that is increasingly determined to obtain a nuclear capability. And this brings me arguably on to one of the greatest failures of the Trump administration, its Iran policy. By abandoning the JCPOA and instituting an enormous sanctions campaign, the Trump administration has been successful at certain things, Successful at bringing Iran closer to a nuclear weapon, successful at increasing the power of the Ayatollah and the hardliners, and successful at spreading Iran's influence, if not outright control, of Iraq. Iran is now enriching uranium at 20%. This is in comparison to the 3 to 4% outlined in the JCPOA. It is a small step from there to a nuclear capability. 
And should Iran obtain that nuclear capability, what will follow? Nuclear proliferation throughout the region. Because it is almost impossible to imagine a scenario in which Iran gets nukes and others do not follow suit. So imagine a world in which Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt at the very least are all racing toward a nuclear armed region. How can this be heralded as a success? How can bringing the Middle East to the brink of mass nuclear proliferation serve the regions, let alone the United States' national interests? And how can the isolation and punishment of the Iranian people that has now nigh on ensured many more years of a hardline regime be heralded as a success? When really was the last time you heard about democracy's rise in Iran? Four years ago? By taking diplomacy entirely off the table with Tehran, the Trump administration has left Iran out in the wilderness of US foreign policy, but not out in the wilderness in the Middle East writ large. And this brings me to my final point. By focusing almost entirely on US policy towards Israel and the isolation of the Iranian regime above all else, the Trump administration has allowed other great and rising powers the ability to advance their own interests. It has allowed China and Iran to forge an ever closer bond. It has allowed Russia to increase its influence in Syria. It has allowed Turkey to engage in an expansionist territorial agenda many would call neo-Ottomanism. And it has allowed for continuing and horrifying bloodshed in Yemen as Iran and Saudi Arabia duke it out in a proxy war at the expense of the Yemeni people. The Trump administration threw a ticker tape parade for small and often furic victories, whilst there are far more consequential losses. In almost every respect, the Middle East is in a far worse place than it was four years ago. Thank you, Justine Rosenthal. And a reminder of where we are, you've just heard the first two opening remarks. Again, our resolution is for the last four years, America got the Middle East right. Next uh, will be a speaker arguing for that resolution, arguing that that statement is true. So I want to give the screen to Danny Danone. Danny, the screen is yours. Thank you very much uh, for having me. First, we have to look at what's happening today. We have diplomatic relations with four countries, and that's remarkable in our region. We can speak a lot about ideas, speeches, but let's analyze the facts. What happened in the last four years in our area, which is, I agree with the former speakers, that it's a messy area. It's like a bazaar, like a Turkish bazaar, that you never know what will happen, but now we have a, a better situation thanks to the policy of the U.S. administration. And I would prove that. First of all, the administration worked with the allies of the U.S., mainly Israel, the Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, and those allies today feel stronger. They respect the U.S. much more, and the bond between the allies of the U.S. and the U.S. is a much stronger bond. The second point is the issue of the Palestinians. We heard about what will happen, but in the last 72 years, we heard more of the same. So many delegations, so many envoys came from the U.S. to Jerusalem trying to do something with the Palestinians, and look what happened, unfortunately. And today, we have a new paradigm, a paradigm that says exactly the opposite. Let's build bridges with the moderate Arab countries, and together we can actually bring the Palestinians to the negotiating table. If it didn't work for 72 years, maybe now it will work. Maybe now, together with Egypt, Jordan, the UAE, Morocco, Bahrain, and, and many other countries, we'll be able to bring the Palestinians and to negotiate a peace deal that we are praying for. The last point is the issue of Iran. Iran is sponsoring terrorism. We saw the agreement. This was not an agreement. That was a joke. 
How can you actually call it an agreement when if you want to inspect a site, you are telling the Iranians in advance that you are coming to inspect the site? How can you call it an agreement when we know that from the beginning the Iranians breached all aspects of the agreement, enriching uranium, ballistic missile tests, sponsoring terrorism all over the Middle East? So today, I ask you one question. If after so many years you have asked the Israelis and so many Arab countries saying that the policy of the U.S. was the right policy, maybe you should listen to us, we, the ones that live here in the Middle East, and we cherish the stability in the region. So to conclude, when I look at the results on the ground, not the speeches, not the delegations, but the results on the ground, I see more stability in the region, and I thank the U.S. for doing it. I'm John Donvan, and you are listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. When we come back, we'll have our final opening statement, and then we'll head into round two of the debate, including audience questions. You're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are in the middle of opening statements on this debate motion. For the last four years, America got the Middle East right. Now we'll hear from our final debater, Michael Ware, who is arguing against that motion. Now, there are two very important words missing from that proposition, and those words are foreign policy. The Trump administration did not seem to have a coherent one, at least not one that saw beyond one deal after another deal, and not one that was exceptionally American. Isn't the ultimate aim, after all, for at least some kind of lasting peace and stability in the Middle East, where tensions are eased but not exacerbated, where American security is more secure, and perhaps, just perhaps, a better life in the Middle East for those who live there? The U.S. has done more to deepen the fault lines of hostility than to ease them. First, let's look to the east of the region. The Trump administration brought tensions with Iran to an inexplicable high. B-52s flying off its coast, a nuclear submarine in the Gulf. There has been no drawdown of U.S. forces in the region, only in Iraq and Syria. Let's face it, Iran is a bad actor but it is a rational one. The Trump administration's notion of maximum pressure, both economic and military, did little to dissuade Tehran. It punishes ordinary people and inflames a nationalism amongst ordinary Iranians that we underestimate. The binding thread of America's actions have been to more deeply entrench the ancient fault lines of Sunni versus Shia thereby making Iran's fears more real. To the south, the theme continues. In Yemen, amidst its brutal civil war, America enabled Saudi Arabia's war crimes. In the north, the banal hopes of a false Trumpian love fest 
with the authoritarian Turkish leader Erdogan saw a renewed Ottoman land grab beyond internationally agreed borders and the shameful abandonment of one of America's most loyal regional allies, the Kurds. The courting of authoritarians has been America's embarrassment. Finally, I want to dispel the dangerous narrative that Trump destroyed the Islamic State. ISIS is still out there. They lost terrain they could never hold. They've simply gone back underground and metastasized further throughout the region. We cannot allow Trump's false claims of victory to lull us into complacency. Thank you, Michael Warren. Thank you to all four of you for your strong opening statements, which certainly staked out a lot of differences over a lot of aspects of what America's policy has been in the region. Everybody's agreed that the region is a mess and difficult and and by no means solved, if not unsolvable. I just want to go to a, a, a sort of philosophical, sort of overarching, almost philosophical question about this. And I'll take it to you, Mary Beth, first. After four years of the Trump administration's policy, is the United States still seen as an important, vibrant player with creative, meaningful ideas that has the concerns of the region in mind and the concerns of U.S. interests in mind? Bottom line, I'm asking if America is respected for its foreign policy in the Middle East. I believe it is. And I think the proof isn't in what I say. Um, and in fact, it, it conflicts with a lot of what our opposition is saying. The proof is that, number one, from a U.S. perspective, this was the first administration in recent memory that did not start a new war or did not start a new conflict in the Middle East. And to accuse this administration of exacerbating the Shia-Sunni divide, if anything, the Sunni have aligned themselves with Israel in the U.S. in an unprecedented fashion. To gloss over what was implicit is now not being effective because it's in writing and explicit is not to look at the reality. People from Israel and the United States and Arab countries are getting on planes and seeing each other. The Arab countries have come out publicly and they don't even discuss Israel as a threat anymore. They discuss Iran and unity with Israel on Iran. Do you think, Mary Beth, that the U.S. gets credit for that? For example, your opponents suggested that the development that are called the Abraham Accords, the agreements in the last last year and a little bit this year, were, were going to happen anyway. Those contacts were happening anyway. There was de facto peace and recognition between those states that it's overplaying the claim of credit to the Trump administration to say that that was a big achievement by the Trump administration. My question to you is, do, do you think that the credit for the achievements that you're talking about accrue to the United States and to the Trump administration? It not only accrues to the United States and the Trump administration, but let's be honest, anybody who is watching knows that while there were some relations between these countries, particularly in intel and some military, it took the personal involvement of a Trump family member to make it happen. And then they converted it to writing and then they locked it in. Whether you agree with the weapon sales to the countries or not, they locked it in with long-term commitments of exchanges on weapon sales and exchanges of military strategy to ensure there's no backsliding and no one can say, well, that's just a Kushner deal. It is a Trump administration accomplishment that none other has achieved to date. All right, let me bring this to Justine by going back to the original question, and then Justine, you can take it where you want. Do you believe that um, the United States is respected in the region for its its policy, military, diplomatic leadership? I think the question would be, by whom? 
have the last four years benefited Israel? I say one could argue it that way. I would say in the long term, as I, as I said in my opening statement, that it will not serve the Israelis well to basically say goodbye to a two-state solution. And I don't think that we are going to be bringing the Palestinians to their knees to the negotiating table because history has never shown that to be the case. Are we respected? Uh, or I don't want to say respected by the Iranian regime because perhaps no one cares whether we're respected right. by them. But we're certainly not a trustworthy partner. I would say that in all of the places in which we have abandoned our allies, including the Kurds, no, we are not right now seen as an actor to be respected. Um, and I think that the fact that we are cozying up more and more with the Arab states without seeing how it is that we can be a peaceful broker in the region, because what we need is peace in the region, not deeper division. Um, I would say our standing is greatly diminished. Okay. Now I want to start looking at some of the cuts that were brought up in your opening statements. And let's start with and continue on Iran. Danny Danone, you, you talked about the Trump administration's decision to walk away from the Iran nuclear deal as a wise decision because you said that the deal itself was ridiculous and 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 was weak. Your opponents have said that the alternative policy the Trump administration put into place, which was a kind of maximum pressure campaign with a strong military element and a strong economic element, has in fact not had the impact that would seem to have been intended, which was to to break the will of the Iranian leadership. In fact, Michael Ware said it has inflamed nationalism among the Iranian people themselves. The, the, the Obama administration seemed to believe that easing sanctions could allow for a more moderate element in Iran to to claim that participation with the world would be beneficial and that Trump took that off all of the table. So can you take all of that on? The pushback from your opponents to the idea that walking away from the Iran deal was a good idea that has led to the region to be safer. They say it's not safer, that the risk of nuclear proliferation, if, if anything, is higher than it's ever been before. So firstly, let's all agree that Iran is a problem, a uh, horrible regime, and we all feel for the Iranian people. We have nothing against the Iranian people. They are suffering. And let's look at the year of 2020. Iran spent $7 billion promoting terrorism. Imagine what they could have done with that money. Maybe buy vaccines uh, against COVID. Maybe support the, the, the poor people in Iran. They didn't do it. They support terrorism. They export the revolution. And we are dealing with it. The question is, what happened in 2014 and 15 with the JCPOA, I call it the feel-good agreement. We were not solving the problem. We allowed the Iranians to continue to play their games, and Israel revealed we were capable of getting our hands on material from the archives in Tehran, and we showed, not everything, but some of the parts that we showed to the world, proved that from the beginning the Iranians were lying. So I prefer that we will deal with the threat together, either economically, uh, God forbid if we'll have to militarily, but we will deal with the threat rather than we sign an agreement that we know that the other side is breaching the agreement, we know that they are enriching uranium. So I hope that the new administration uh, will realize that uh, and will not re-enter the JCPOA uh, before looking at the required uh, amendments that will not allow Iran to do what they are doing. So a key part of the JCPOA, part of the deal was the lifting of sanctions. The Trump administration put the sanctions back in place. Do you agree with the, the, the logic of the economic sanctions being in place? In other words, if Michael Ware is saying, number one, they're not persuasive to the leadership, number two, they're 
they're harmful to the people of Iran. There's no question. The economy is in an absolute disaster now. Do you agree with the logic of that argument? Or, or is there any merit to what the Obama administration was arguing and presumably potentially the Biden administration will as well, is that easing economic sanctions could have a beneficial impact in this dynamic? I think we should all look at the end game. You know, we, we saw what happened with the North Korea. They were playing the same game. And all of a sudden, we all woke up one morning and we learned about a, a nuclear test. It can happen in a year. We don't want to be there. That's why I think we should apply more sanctions. And I urge the Europeans uh, to do the same. And I can tell you, it worked. It worked because it was very hard for the regime to continue. It was very hard for the leadership of the regime to live under the, the, the sanctions. And every time that the U.S. State Treasury Department came out with new sanctions, they were not happy in Tehran. So I think it, it takes more than the U.S. It takes the, the entire international community to work together, to apply pressure, to isolate Iran, and to force them uh, to change their behavior. Okay, Michael Ware, uh, your opponent is saying that the economic sanctions worked. Your response to that? Well, no, they haven't. And I'm glad that the ambassador brings up the example of North Korea because that's precisely where I was going to take us to. North Korea is a far more impoverished nation than Iran. It has just as many sanctions imposed upon it, if not more. And yet this dirt poor country, despite international focus, still develops a nuclear bomb. So what exactly do you think you're going to do to stop the Iranians from doing it? What incentives are you giving them not to do it? And let me ask this, what honestly do you think you're going to do about it? I mean, the Iranians are not afraid of Israel and the West. So somehow we find we need to find another way. And, OK, the JCPOA may have been a flawed document, but for goodness sakes... It was a start. So perhaps under the Biden administration now, they will be able to make a harder agreement, a tighter agreement, and begin moving to more expansive issues like state sponsor of terror and ballistic missiles. But to just tear up the document and let the Iranians literally go underground in mountain bunkers and start processing uranium at 20%, that doesn't help Israel, and it doesn't help the United States. I, I really just want to add to that, that we have also, in essence, taken diplomacy completely off the table. And I think in an ideal world, what we would want to see is some form of normalization of relations with Iran at some point in the future. I do not see how continuing to isolate them, berate them, um, and lose our European allies in the process on this issue is ever going to get us there, unfortunately. Mary Beth. I think we're confusing what the real issue is. We're, we've, we seem to have drifted as to whether we're arguing about whether we agree uh, that everything the Trump administration did was right and whether it cured all the ails uh, that we've had now for decades in the Middle East, the Sunni-Shia divide, whether Iran actually has ever said it didn't want a nuclear weapon and for that to be credible. Uh, that's not what we're arguing. We're arguing about whether or not today the Middle East is a safer place than it was four years ago. And you cannot vote for the fact that it is not. You can't vote for the other side unless you somehow believe that the JCPOA was being abided by 
and that four years into and closer to a sunset um, that we all agree would, would probably not be healthy for any of us. And if you ignore everything that the Israelis found about it cheating, if we're going to put that aside and say, well, you know, it was a start, you would also have to ignore the fact that the Sunni Shia somehow exacerbated by the Trump administration. Not true. Factually incorrect. Actually, you've got Sunni countries that have now a written agreement with Israel. You have the, the Sunna and the Shia, the GCC reconciling. You have polling in Qatar and in Oman that actually shows that for the first time ever that their populations are more suspicious about Iran than they are about Israel. And you have Bahrain, a majority Shia country that has signed on to a formal normalization process with Israel. You'd have to ignore all that. You'd also have to ignore that when we pick up the paper every morning, we're not reading about al-Nusra. We're not reading about ISIS. We're not reading about the conflagration in Syria. It's relatively contained, certainly to where it was four years ago. So Mary Beth, when you're talking about what the framing of this debate is about, it, safety is part of it, but it's also we're really looking at whether the policy is the reason for that and whether it would be incumbent upon the Biden administration to, to, to continue this thread or to try something different or to go back in time. And one very big change that came about in this, uh, uh, the approach of the Trump administration was where the Palestinians were placed in the process. And the Abraham Accords were reached without Palestinian involvement. Um, and that represents a, a major shift in what was always an article of faith for U.S. administrations, which was that the Palestinian situation needed to be addressed before everything else. And the Trump administration did not sign up to that. The Trump administration moved the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which was always, which was exactly, they've turned it on its head. I want to take that to Danny Danone. Do you think that that approach is, if, if Joe Biden is tempted to go back to the approach that Donald Trump threw out, which was be to put the Palestinians at the center of peace talks and this, and to regard the solving of the Palestinian issue as being the one that needs to come first, ideally should come first. What would your response be if Joe Biden wants to go back to that? I would advise him to look at history. For so many years, we heard the same line that first you have to solve the conflict with the Palestinians before you can uh, build bridges with the moderate Arab countries. Uh, we heard it from the Arab League. We heard it from Secretary Kerry, who said it almost uh, every week. Nothing will happen in the Middle East unless you will finalize the, uh, the argument with the Palestinians. And look, the paradigms changed completely. Uh, and today, when we see the bridges that we have, and I have to tell you, we, it's not something minor. Uh, when I flew to the UAE and to Morocco in the past, uh, as uh, the ambassador and in a different capacity that I had in the government. And every time it was so sophisticated to do the coordination, the security arrangements, to make sure that nobody will, will report it. And look what we have today, 14 flights a week from Tel Aviv to Dubai. In a few weeks, we're going to have a direct flight from Tel Aviv to um, Casablanca. Uh, we don't take it for granted. And I think what it will happen, it will be a reality check for the Palestinians. And they will hear it not from us, the Israelis, not from the Americans. They will hear it from the Arab leaders in the region that will tell them, Israel is here to stay. 
You, you have to accept it. Now sit down, negotiate, and we're going to help you to do that. I think it will help the process with the Palestinians because I don't think that they are capable of negotiating by themselves. I don't think they are capable of making necessary compromises to achieve an agreement. And we all know we have to compromise. We prove that we are able to compromise when we signed agreements with Egypt, with Jordan, and also the recent agreements uh, that we signed. That's how you make peace, you make compromises. I think we can make it together with the moderate Arab countries. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S., and we're in the middle of a debate about U.S. policy in the Middle East over the last four years and where the new administration should go from here when it comes to Iran and Israel and Iraq and more. When we come back, we'll hear questions from the audience as well as closing statements from each of our debaters. And now a word from Intelligence Squared U.S. CEO Clea Connor about this program's sponsor. A reminder that we're in the midst of a debate with the motion, for the last four years, America got the Middle East right. Now let's go to some audience questions. W. David Buss asks, has life and security improved for the Lebanese, the Iranians, Egyptians, Jordanians, Iraqis, Syrians, etc.? Again, improved during the four years and as a result of the American policy of the four years. I'll take that to you, Justine. Again, it's not that I think the Abram Accords are a bad thing. I don't think this is a black and white issue. I think we can continue the work of the Abram Accords, but with conditions. Where we are now is that within weeks of the Accords, there are announcements of new settlements in the West Bank. And speaking of what the problems are going to look like for the Israelis in the future, the Israeli government is administering the COVID vaccine to Israelis in the West Bank, and as far as I know, as of yesterday, not to the Palestinians. Most things that are not good for the Palestinians are not pretty, not very good for the Jordanians or uh, the Lebanese. And I would say in Iraq, the full handover of that country to Iran as a proxy is now complete. The Israelis now have this greater Israel problem on their hands. And I say, as a supporter of Israel, we need to be thinking about the consequences of that and the consequences of not getting towards a two-state solution, at least some movement towards it, because this is going to be a problem I fear for Israelis. Michael, were you going to jump in there? I support the momentum of the Abraham Accords wholeheartedly. Look, my greatest dream, it won't be in my lifetime nor my children's, but that one day Tehran normalizes relations with Tel Aviv. But at what cost? All we're talking about is flights and, yes, person-to-person, people-to-people engagement. That's vital for healing. But at what cost has been paid? It's been like a flea market for arms sales. The United Arab Emirates now has is getting F-35s. Now, I don't know, Ambassador, if you feel comfortable about that, but I know it dulls Israel's military advantage in the region. So these things have not come without cost, and you Want to think there's not going to be blowback from any of these things? And, of course, when it comes to the Palestinians, I can tell you the Arab states are sick of the Palestinians. Lebanon and all the refugees, Jordan, even Saudi Arabia, everyone's getting exhausted by the cause. So, yes, finding alternative ways to motivate the the Palestinians back to a new negotiating table is most welcome but not without their inclusion and not without America giving away a free-for-all. Does Israel regret seeing Donald Trump leave the scene for the time being as uh, having any influence on Middle East policy? We we, we have so much politics here in Israel. We don't involved in 
in your politics. We have elections coming up. No, sorry, I'm not going to let you get away with that. But I will say one thing, uh, John. We, we are grateful. We are grateful for the decision it took uh, pulling from the Iran deal, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, and, and, for, and initiating the Abraham Accords. And we think they, they were important uh, decisions regarding the Middle East. Justine, do you want to respond to that? I'm not sure how we can continue to sort of sideline and ignore the elephant in the room that is Iran's increasing nuclear program. We can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good or even the sort of maybe good enough for now. They are enriching uranium at a far greater level. We are talking about having a potential massive amount of nuclear proliferation throughout the entire Middle East. And a couple of handshake deals between Israel and, some, and the UAE and Bahrain does not counteract that. So, so is that a style choice that had, it appears potentially that President Trump made that choice as a calculation? And I, 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 the question is, do you, would one recommend continuing to be unpredictable in that way? No, I, the rationality oh, of your rationality is not something I think is a long-term policy for anybody but Kim Jong-il. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, and I would say that I think that had Trump won re-election, we would not have seen such restraint from Iran. This was a bide our time and let's hope somebody else gets back into the White House that will follow along with the UN and the EU and other member states that do not want to completely isolate the regime. Mary Beth, it was you who said that Iran was on the march four years ago, much less so now. Justine is saying absolutely, absolutely not true. So can you, can you defend that point that you made at your opening? Absolutely. And I, I want to distinguish, and I, and I think I did the, the nuclear portfolio from the other portfolios. Um, I, I, what I was referring to was Iranian presence in Syria and Iranian influence in Syria that was certainly on the increase at this point in time four years ago. The Russians and the Syrians themselves have put a check on that, as have the Iranians when they began to get very concerned about Iranian body bags could force members and others returning home from Syria. Uh, and, and as you know, Israel did a tremendous job in the last four years checking Iranian uh, activities along the Israeli-Iranian border, which were increasing at this time four years ago. Uh, I'm not willing to say that there is, that, that Iraq is now uh, some kind of Iranian proxy uh, writ large. I think the Iraqis are strong. Struggling. Uh, I don't think Iraq is uh, an Iranian fiefdom. I think that's a, a way too far. Uh, Iraq is entitled to have its relationships with Iran. It has been a, a long time since there have been casualties as a, a, as a consequence of either ISIS or Iranian-backed militias in um, Iraq to a significant degree, and that's a substantial change from where we were four years ago. Yes, there's influence. Yes, there will always be influence, and we're always going to have that difficulty in Iraq, but it is certainly not at all taken over by um, Iran, and certainly Iran is not on the march, on the ascendancy in Iraq. I want to go back to Danny Danon to circle back to, the as, as Justine put it, the elephant in the region, Iran, you know, Israel, U.S. ally in the region, and we're not arguing what's in Israel's interest. We're arguing more what's in America's interest in the regions generally. But Israel's in the region. Israel is a U.S. ally. And I want to put the question to you. Does Israel feel safer vis-a-vis -vis Iran than it did four years ago? And is it concerned that the policy of the last four years will not continue? Well, John, I got confused because I thought we were having a debate vis -vis about Iran. I thought we were having a debate about U.S. policy in the last four years, and we were having a debate about the Iranian policy in the last four years. 
Uh, but we, we should all agree that the Iranians are not going anywhere. Uh, and I do agree uh, that uh, they are getting stronger because they are dedicated to promote the revolution. So, so, so does that mean does that mean that the last four years of policy did not reduce the effectiveness of the Iranians as as disruptors in the region? No, you, you have two different tracks. You have the Iranian track, the spending billions on terrorism to promote instability, and they will continue to do that. But on the other end, you see that the moderate forces became stronger. Also, we became united. Today, we share intelligence. We cooperate. And the Iranians know today that they cannot send their proxies to Yemen, Lebanon, uh, Gaza, you name it. Today we are collaborating, and I think that collaboration is meaningful. Uh, and I think we have to thank the U.S. for putting all of those forces together. When you do things quietly, it's important. But when you come to the U.N., or when you come to the Security Council, and you see all those countries coming and standing against Iran, it is uh, meaningful. So the Iranians became stronger. I agree with that. But at the same time, uh, the good guys, we became stronger also, and we became united. And this unity is meaningful for the future, where we will have to confront the hatred and radical ideas coming from Tehran. What a tremendous disservice to the tens of thousands of Iranians and Iraqis just in the last two or three years that went out onto the streets and protested against their regime's corruption, protested against Iranian influence, and the martyrs that died because they refused to go back inside and they refused to be suppressed by the militias that were Iranian-backed. It's a terrible disservice to say that Iraq is a proxy state of the Iranians when you had tens of thousands of Iraqis who died making exactly that point that they were not, nor were they going to be in Iraq in Iranian proxy. Justine, as it happens, because of the clock, the chance for the final comment on this round comes to you. If you were advising President Biden right now on what to do about the Middle East and acknowledging that talking about the Middle East as one monolith is a huge mistake because it's far more nuanced than that. But if you were going to talk, let's let's make it about Iran and let's make it about the Palestinians. Would you be calling for change in the U.S. position? And what would that be? I would be saying that we need to find a way to get back to the JCPOA rolling back Iran's nuclear program and starting to normalize relations, I would be losing diplomacy with other states besides those in the Abram Accords as another arsenal in U.S. foreign policy. And I'd be saying that we need to start moving back towards at least discussion of a two-state solution and bringing the Palestinians back to the negotiating table, even as we continue to help Israel normalize its relations with other states. Danny Danone, um the second point in particular I'm interested in your take on, the two-state solution being a priority of U.S. foreign policy. It has not been quite as much for President Trump as for preceding administrations. Do you think that that, focus, that that solution should come back into primary focus? I think promoting a dialogue with the Palestinians should be part of the agenda of the new administration. We encourage it. But I think you cannot leave the allies of the U.S. by themselves. What we saw in the last four years that the U.S. gained respect in the region from their allies. The U.S. will have to include them also in the process with the Palestinians in order to achieve results. And, and, and I think that today the first thing that the President-elect Biden should do is to listen to the allies of the U.S. in the region, to include them in the dialogue that he will have regarding whether he's going back to the JCPOA or not, and also when he will start to deal with the Palestinian issue 
also to bring them to the table, to bring them to a conference in DC, but it has to be a round table with the allies of the US. It will be a mistake to say, we know what we are doing. We will teach you how to do it. Listen to my vision. It doesn't work that way. It failed in the past. And uh, President-elect Biden was there when uh, the, he saw the speech in Cairo. He saw what happened after that. The right approach is to include, is to bring the allies of the US to the table. So I would advise that President Biden uh, to listen to the allies of the U.S., to include them in future negotiations, uh, and to bring them to the table when he wants to promote peace in the Middle East, when he wants to promote the peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Mary Beth, I want to take that to you, and I'm going to take it also to Michael. You know, advising, uh, advising President Biden about stay the course that was set by President Trump in the Middle East in general, or, or change some things up in a serious way? Honestly, I think that what has happened in the last four years has given President Biden a lot of options uh, that his predecessors did not have. And that staying the course means giving up leverage in some respects and not revealing all its options. I think he needs to find his own course. But I do think that turning back time on the JCPOA, even if you could get the same deal, circumstances have dramatically changed and it's not the same context. So I would encourage him to use the leverage, whether he agreed with the policies of the Trump administration or he agrees with the positives and negatives and the balances thereof. He needs to find his own path, but don't be afraid to leverage the very good things that have happened in the last four years that give him more options than in the past. Thank you to all four of you. That concludes uh, the second round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, and now we are turning the corner to home. So let's move on to round three, closing statements, each debater in turn, here to make her closing statement in support of the resolution for the last four years, America got the Middle East right, is Mary Beth Long. Mary Beth. Look, we've had a lot of discussion about a lot of very difficult subjects, but the, the bottom line is a lot of the problems we have discussed have existed, some of them for decade, decades, if not centuries. And we've discussed a lot of players, Iran, Syria, the U.S., Russia, China, all of it. The fact of the matter is none of these players and none of these policies was the trip or the trigger that made everything better or everything worse. At the end of the day, if you're sitting on the ground in the Middle East and you're reading the newspaper, you're not reading about ISIS terrorism, you're not reading about al-Nusra, you're not worried that the JCPOA has hidden the, the development of not only a run amok missile program, but a nuclear program. Yes, the Palestinian issue is still with us, but it is dramatically changed. And for the first time in a lifetime, if not ever, you've got the US, Israel, and the Gulf states aligned against Iran and recognizing that Israel is no longer their biggest enemy in the region. If that and the absence of terrorism in our daily lives is not safer, I don't know what is. You need to Thanks vote for much. this resolution. Thanks, Mary Beth. Our next speaker will be speaking against the resolution. Here is Justine A. Rosenthal. Justine, the screen is yours. I will keep this brief. Say, if you wanted to live in a world with a nuclear-armed Middle East, then I would say you vote for the motion. Um, if you want to live in a world where thousands are dying in humanitarian crises, then America does absolutely nothing to stop, vote for the motion. If you want to live in a world where American interests are being overrun by China, Russia, and Turkey, then you vote for the motion. I implore you that this is not the world in which we want to live, and that is why you should vote against that sort of future for America and the Middle East. 
Thank you, Justine. And our next speaker will be speaking for the resolution. Here is Danny Denon. Danny, the floor is yours. Thank you. I urge you all to support the motion and listen to your allies. We, here in the Middle East, we work together with you, and we are telling you that in the last four years, we felt safer, we felt more secure, and as a former Deputy Defense Minister, we do not take it for granted. We think every day about our security. So if we feel better today, and your allies in the Gulf are feeling better today, I urge you to listen to them. In the last four years, the allies of the U.S. became stronger, they became more united, and who knows what will be the challenges in the future, but at least we know that we will do it together. Thank you, Danny. And finally, our last argument will be made against the resolution, which one more time is for the last four years, America got the Middle East right. Here is Michael Ware. I would urge you to vote against this motion. Whilst the Trump administration has marshaled allies, sometimes in an unprecedented way, I question the cost by which this has been achieved and the fact that no fetter has been put on any of these allies to change their behaviours, and all with the singular purpose of neutralising Iran, thereby escalating tensions with that country as it lurches or hurdles towards developing a nuclear capability. There are ancient and long-standing divides in that region. The Trump administration didn't create them, but it went in there and beat them with a stick. I, like others, have seen what these divisions look like on the ground. In the invasion of Iraq, I saw a Turkmen, nine-year-old girl, who'd been shot by ethnic rivals and laid at the stoop of our hotel door. I've seen Sunni Shia civil war in Baghdad. I can't describe it. And yet what the Trump administration has done has moved the pieces around so that it's shaken the tectonic plates of these divisions. And I don't think that bodes well for a greater future beyond a four-year term. Thank you, Michael Aaron. Thanks to all of our debaters. And that concludes the final round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. The argumentation is over. On the resolution, for the last four years, America got the Middle East right before the debate and polling our live audience. 21% agreed with that statement, 44% disagreed, and 23% were undecided. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, for the last four years, America got the Middle East right, Again, their first vote was 21%. Their second vote was 33%. So they pulled up 12 percentage points. That is the number to beat now. The team arguing against the motion, their first vote was 44%. Their second vote was 63%. They pulled up 19 percentage points. That beats the 12%. It means the team arguing against the motion for the last four years, America got the Middle East right, has been declared our winner. So I want to say congratulations to uh, Justine and Michael, again, our first ever married couple debating team uh, for doing this in separate rooms of your house. I want to thank Mary Beth and uh, Ambassador Danny Denone for arguing well and fiercely and honestly and civilly. I want to thank all four of you for, as I said a moment ago, helping to shed light through fair and honest disagreement. Thank you so much. We will see you next time from Intelligence Squared. I'm John Donvan. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. Our programs are generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff. Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Jennifer Zelmer is senior researcher. Mary Dew and Damon Whittemore are our radio producers. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm John Donvan, your host. Thanks so much for joining us.